there's three kinds of risks. There's the mandatory risks, there's the optional risks, and there's the avoided risks. The mandatory risks are the risks we perceive that we need to take in order to function. And those are things like driving a car or things like getting out of bed. Now we go into the optional risks or the chosen risks. That's where we make the decision as to whether we want to add some richness to our lives so that we have a, a more positive experience, so that we have a more satisfying life. And on the business side, that we have the opportunity to, to expand our careers. Welcome to the Waste No Day podcast, a podcast specifically for and about the home services industry as it relates to plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and electrical. More than a podcast, Waste No Day is a credo, a determination, a mindset. It is a never-ending discipline. It is a refuse-to-lose pursuit. It is a wake-up call every morning to waste no day. Now here's your hosts, Brian Burton and Nate Minnick. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Waste No Day podcast. Your host, Nate and Brian, hanging out with you again. And we are excited to invite on the show this time, Jim McCormick author and skydiver extraordinaire, Brian. Uh, we're looking forward to having a great conversation with him about the power of risk. Before we do that, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that subject for ourselves, and we're going to turn to Brian for a quote. No matter your level of ability, you have more potential than you could possibly develop over a lifetime. James T. McKay, author. And I know that seems like a strange quote to pick for a risk uh, interview, but, and I had a lot of great quotes from, from Jim's book, um, the power of risk that I wanted to use. Actually, I had a bunch of quotes written down from the first time manager, Jim's other book that I wanted to use, but this quote was, uh, it was something I really wanted to use because like, what's the reason we don't develop our potential in, in most cases? That was definitely a component of fear it's on the other side of some risk typically yeah. because there's we're afraid of failure or rejection in some capacity and we have to take a step out of our comfort zone to get to that potential's development and it's usually like ooh i don't want to i'm going to push myself too hard here you know or i'm in my case it gets to feeling like i'm really comfortable here i'm really comfortable doing what i'm doing and where i'm at and i'm like i don't need to risk so why do it you know um but in any case, like we're going to get to the end of this life soon, regardless. Like nobody listening to this, at least you know, within a year or two of its of its uh, release in twenty twenty three, is going to be alive in a hundred years. Period. Flat out, doesn't matter. It's just not going to happen. So, do we really want to look back? Like, I'm glad I didn't take any risk. Or is it worth? Is it worth really? You know, jumping out of that plane. And seeing what what we can land on, I see what you did there, Brian. Yeah, buddy. Uh, that's a uh, that's called uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> Not when you call it foreshadowing, though, is it? <laughs> you gave it away. You know what I mean? Um, I wanted to I wanted to point out a few stats that I that I read, um, and and really about developing our potential. And you know, I I know we have some listeners to this show who are very, very successful in terms of money and, and accomplishment and career, multi, multi-millionaires. 
I'd like to hope there's a couple billionaires. If they are, I don't know who they are. I think Elon Musk probably listens to this show. It's Why wouldn't guaranteed. he? I know. Yeah. He's got companies that he wants to be successful. So we got to post this on Twitter for him to listen. He to. doesn't seem like a guy who's wasting many days. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Just one goes with the other. So he's probably a big fan of the show. Um, but I know there are some multi, multi millionaires who listen to the show. But for those listeners who are not or or maybe some of you who are not even close and like really just getting started out in your career I wanted to offer some statistics that I hope serve as like a beacon of hope or just a a uh, something to get you a little bit excited in the year 1900 in the United States there were 5000 total millionaires in the year 2000 there were 5 million millionaires that's 1,000x from the year 1900 to the year 2000. In 2022, the last last year as this airs, which was the last year you know these surveys were done, there were 22 million millionaires in the United States. 22 million millionaires. That's uh, over four times what there were two years previously. In, or I'm sorry, 22 years previously in the year 2000. Eight Point eight percent of United States adults are millionaires. What? Eight point eight percent. About we should just round up for you know let's say nine percent. Close to nine percent of adults in the U.S. are millionaires. Nine out of every hundred. Wow, I feel like fact checking you right now, but that's crazy. That's By a all crazy means, stat. I, I am going to quote the uh, the. Um, article I got most of this from. I had to dig myself to get some of it, but I did try to cross-reference as much as possible with other places to find stats. The Bureau of, what is it, Bureau of Statistics or something like that. Uh, the Census, U.S. Census Bureau. I, I like looked at all these websites to try to just make sure, you know, that it was close. And from what I, everything I could find, none of these numbers were wildly off from one to the other. So I'm like, they're they're probably pretty close. So that's probably a good place to give the credit for most of these stats that I'm quoting came from a woman named Abby McCain, who I don't know and have never heard of, but uh, she wrote, wrote an article about this on a website called Zippia, Z-I-P-P-I-A.com. Uh, and I just found the stats, stats fascinating and it's something that I wanted to piece together for an episode. But yeah, so around nine out of every hundred U.S. adults is a millionaire. The average millionaire age is uh, 41. I wish. <laughs> As a 43-year-old. 57. Oh, okay. Good. 57. I still, I still can't obtain my opportunity. Though. Yeah, so you, you look at it and you go, wait out of every 100 and I'm not even close. Like maybe you're just starting out. You're in, you got some debt, you, you, you know, like credit card and college debt. And you don't, you know, you just got into the trades or into whatever career you're in. And you're like, I'll never get there, but you're 28, you know, you're good. You got 30 years. You're yeah, fine. This is how I feel when, you know, when I watch the NFL now as a 37 year old, I'm like, Oh, eh, what have I done man. with my life? That's, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and he was born in the year 2002 and you're like, yeah. Oh, come on. Why you got to bring that up? <laughs> Uh, yeah, the average millionaire age is 57. So if you're in your twenties and thirties and you're, and you're, you know, you just feel like you're financially just starting out, like you're fine. You're fine. Like really most people, most people that I know who are even wealthy were broke 
in their 20s and 30s, even in their early 40s. That's a fact. Like, as I think through all the wealthy people I know, most of them don't get there till their 40s, realistically. Only 8% of the millionaires in the United States came from an Ivy League school. There's a stat that I like. Yeah, baby. <clears throat> I don't know. Like, they, you can't find stats on trade school or, or you know, um, people in the tra- skilled trades, which is something I'd love to, a stat I'd love to find. But only 8% of the millionaires in this in this country came from Ivy League schools. So not a prerequisite, thankfully. One great stat is 39.1% of millionaires on this planet are found in the United States of America. So just shy of 40%, four out of every 10. The second biggest country. So the U.S. has 22 million of the millionaires, uh, total millionaires. China is number two and has 5 million. Wow. Japan is number three with 4 million. United Kingdom, uh, uh, England is, is number four with 2 million. And France is just below them with slightly under 2 million, according to this, this uh, survey that I read. 79% of millionaires in the United States received $0 in their entire life in inheritance. Another great stat. I like yeah, that one too. Eight out of ten received not a penny from Self, parents. Self-made. Self-made. That's all I got. And I'm I'm pumped to talk to uh, Jim McCormick about like leveraging risk, I guess you'd say. Like how, how we can leverage risk. And I guess the biggest thing that we need to, like we all know when we have this Maybe it's an opportunity that comes our way. Maybe it's it's um, it's something that we think or feel like we should do, but fear just makes us go, eh, I don't need to take that risk right now, you know? And I'm hoping just a conversation with Jim McCormick and, and all of our listeners hopefully reading the power of risk and definitely reading the first-time manager um, because whether you're in management now or leadership or now or not, the fact that you listen to this show means that if you're not there yet, you're going to be at, at some point because the vast majority of just employees will not listen to something like this. They will not interrupt their day of music and sports radio and news talk shows or whatever to listen to something like this that's like calorie-dense food for their mind and spirit. They won't do it. They're doomed to be employees. They're doomed to to be at the lowest level of whatever company they're at. Choosing to be. Choosing to be. Yeah, they're not mm-hmm. doomed. They, they're choosing to be. Because this is work. Like, I know, I, like, I listen to this. I listen to every episode of this show, right? Nate sends it to me, what, two, three days before it airs, and I listen to it for editing to make sure everything's edited right. And then... Um, I listen to nothing, almost nothing but audiobooks and podcasts like this one to like make myself better. Like almost nothing but if if I'm in the gym, I might listen to music if I like need a pick me up. Not all the time, but sometimes. But outside of that, this is what I'm listening to, this kind of stuff. And almost every case, I would rather be listening to music. 
This is Still. why this is why Lil Chirp's career needs to be put out there for everybody because drop some pearls it, in a in rap. in the rap. We could we could hit the best of both worlds. The music community who needs that pump as well as you know the the pearls coming from the Waste No Day episodes. I don't disagree, Lil Chirp. Let's drop that album, bro. What do we need to do here? We got a studio. <laughs> You're here. We, we we haven't hit that point yet. The audience has not gotten to the begging state yet oh, okay well, we're almost at that 200 reviews only uh, a few months late <laughs> <laughs> look if you're listening let's go we got what we got two to go Where are we at 198 as we sit here now no there's no way we're at 198 uh 199 oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well it's fine it's not january 1st, yeah so. someone snuck one in there on me uh, all right, all right. Well, we'll get to that one in probably a couple months. But yes, yeah, Brian is literally taking strangers' phones at this point. Putting <laughs> <There. laughs> hey, down. hey, Brian Burton, can I get? Let me throw my info in your phone there. <laughs> Quick, open the podcast app, five star review, flip open the contacts, and go. Yep, that's me there. Yeah, go. Not a single flight attendant in from here to Arizona has not had their phone <laughs> taken. <laughs> I like what you're saying there, Brian, and you know the. Uh, the age-old quote about luck, luck is opportunity meets preparation. Um, perhaps it needs some updating because it's not only about opportunity and preparation. It's about the willingness to risk what could be. It's about the willingness to step outside of that comfort zone into something while managing and minimizing you know, the, the potential downfall, but also accepting and pursuing the reality of what could be. And that sounds all very theoretical and, and you know, nice and uh, written down in a book somewhere. And that is, in fact, what we're going to talk about with Jim today. But we're going to try to put it in as much of a practical conversation as we can, because we all are running up against risk somewhere in our lives. Um, some of it is recognized and acknowledged and others of other parts of it are, are just, you know, we do it without even really thinking. And so it's not necessarily about... Um, the the levels of risk as much as it is are we are we choosing to walk into a place of discomfort are we choosing to walk in uh into decisions and saying yes i'm willing to step a little bit farther here because that's that's where the growth lies the growth does not lie in just the comfort zone of always staying with what you know you have to be willing to step outside doesn't nate know it he's yeah. just just telling me and brennan our plumbing ops manager here about how he's doing like one-armed um one-armed uh, tricep extensions yes. and, and one-armed dead or one-leg deadlift, which I've never done that before. No, 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 no. One, one leg. Uh, or sorry, uh, uh, leg press. Leg press. One yeah. leg, single leg leg press, which I've never done before. I would like, like to see myself a scary. do a single leg deadlift. Do you <laughs> drop your, your other foot down or do you keep it up there for safety? Like On the leg press? Yeah. No, it's just sitting on the floor. Man, if that thing fell, just well, split it's, it's you got, right in it's half. It's got yeah. the safety guard on it, you know? Yeah, I don't trust it. Yeah, <laughs> I like squats where I can just throw that thing right off me if I need to and will, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that that certainly is uh, a risk. And yeah, and you and know, pursuing it's a it's a it's a slight risk. But what you know about the comfort zone piece is like you'll you can just do the same exercises with the same weight, the same number of reps, right? Week in, week out for the rest of your life, and you will not grow the slightest bit. But if you add a another five pound plate to each side of that thing, whatever you're working with and do two more reps than you did last time you did it. Now you got to 
probably got to sleep a little bit more, probably got to eat a little bit more Sleep calories. a little faster. Sleep a little faster. Got to add some protein to the diet, but you will grow. Your muscles will grow. You'll get harder and you'll be able, you'll get stronger. I've wanted to do a training on microplates uh, for our next level leaders at some point. Just What's haven't that? gotten to that. Microplates, like the two and a half pounds, one pound. Why? Because it's the ability to. Please, no, we're not doing that. It's 45 no. pounds, baby. <laughs> Putting wheels on those things. Two and a half pound plate. They make those? They do. And the reason they make them is because if you can't quite make it from, you know, the five or 10 pound increments, you still have the ability to keep pressing yourself up a little bit higher. Oh, yeah. My wife probably knows all about those, but I don't know. Thank you. I'll take that as an insult. (laughs) Compliment. (laughs) I love Amelia. (laughs) Also thought this was a great episode to bring up the uh, Brian Tracy thing that I I probably brought up twice now, maybe over the two and a half years we've been been, uh, releasing these podcasts, which is being stranded on Someday Isle. Oh, yeah. And because you strand yourself on Someday Isle for the same reason, right? risk aversion you you strand yourself on someday aisle with the other uh excuse makers someday i'll get to the gym someday i'll start getting up a little bit earlier i know that one's gonna gonna be a sore spot for some people who work here but someday i'll start getting up an hour before i normally do and getting in here a half an hour before i need to not just so i'm not late but like so i can do some some back and forth with with uh my fellow technicians so i can uh pdr practice drill rehearse so i can role play a little bit just so i can have good conversation with positive motivated people like if you could if you're coming in and you see the guy that just has you know for every solution he has a problem don't talk to him just just kind of go around make a just make a, a half circle around that person but find the positive person who who's always on their grind and like hustling and always talking about their goals and watch what happens to you. You get affected by it. If you allow yourself to be stranded on someday aisle with the other excuse makers saying someday I'll get myself the proper training and increase my ticket average and increase my pay. Uh, you're never going to get there. And the only way to get off the island, according to Brian Tracy, is by... Voting yourself off because the people on Someday Isle are all afflicted with a very highly contagious, fatal disease. Mm, scary. You know what that disease is? Mate. I do. I'm, what I'm, is it, buddy? I'm well acquainted with excusitis. <laughs> it is the disease of excusitis, or what Brian Tracy called the inflammation of the excuse making gland. And it is invariably fatal to success. So take the risk, take the leap, make the plunge, whatever. Jump out of the plane, as we'll hear more about here shortly, and uh, and take your shot, man. Go spend that money on that training. Get up earlier. Stay up late and study. Get around positive people. Go ahead and take the risk of hurting some feelings or being looked at as a sellout by the super negative dumpster talk crew who's only there to point out the you know, as, as uh, Stephen Covey would say, to confess the boss's sins, right? Skip those people. Let, let them ruin their own career. You focus on getting better and stepping out of the comfort zone, take the risk, and become a champion. 
and then we'll uh, we'll have you on the podcast one day. It'll be awesome. Oh, I love that. <clears throat> and you know, I think some of it, Brian, is uh, even even a, a mindset shift, right? So over the last number of years, I've tried to make a, a shift in my mindset when I come up against something that I would like to buy, but I currently don't have. Like let's say it's a really nice uh, brand new Corvette, and I say in my head, my natural inclination is to say, "Oh, I can't afford that." You've been you've been able to afford that for like three years. <laughs> what are you talking about? He still he still thinks he can't afford it, but you can go buy but that now. What you what what I've been trying to train myself into is saying I choose not to afford that. Oh God, just go get it, bro. <laughs> like I want to hear you pulling up from here on out. All right. Yeah. <sighs> but I think that's that's some of it, right? It's it's the not only the acknowledgement but the awareness of our choices. It's not oh I don't have time or I'm too busy. Or, you know, uh, I just haven't been able to fit into my schedule. No. Who, who owns you? This is something I try to go over with my sons all the time. Who owns you? Who owns your choices? Who is responsible for your outcomes? It's not your brother. It's not your parents. It's not the bullies at school. It's, it's not the neighbors down the road. It's you. You are the one in control of you. And nobody's taking that from you. And so stop with this bull crap about how you don't have enough time or you don't have enough money or you've been so busy or too tired or whatever. You are that way. If that is true, you are that way because you have chosen your way into it. It's not something that has been forced upon you. It's not something that has been demanded of you. I, I know there's seasons of life where those things can happen, but I mean, holistically and generally, you are in control of your own life and your own decisions. So stop making this nonsense excuse-itis baloney about how you don't have time, money, and whatever. Choose to find ways around that. Choose the hard things in life. Choose to risk and receive the rewards that come with it. And we're going to have more great conversation about that today with Jim McCormick. But of course, before we do, it's time for our review of the week. Brian, who are we highlighting today? The trades need this! Exclamation. Five stars. I started listening to this podcast about two months ago and quickly went through every episode. I love that. In two months, went through two and a half years of episodes. It's awesome. That's a marathon man right there. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) we, we, We have a lot of time to have a headphone plugged into the ear. You know what I mean? Right. It's true. Thanks, Brian. Oh, no, Nate. I like that. Anyways, that was a great review, Brian, but uh, we have to move on to our interview. We're going to read this one next week, too. (laughs) Thanks, Brian, for taking some time today to talk to my team. Oh, okay. I'm sure you earned some new listeners. Keep up the good work. J-C-B-O Hall. Jacob O. Hall? J-C-B-O-H-A-L-L. All right, J-C-B-O. Appreciate that, man. Thank you. This one posted January 31st. So, all right, I'm going to get candid here for a sec, guys. I don't remember who this is. My apologies. Uh, I bet it was an awesome conversation. <laughs> and, and the team was cool as crap because actually every time I do it, they are. But I like, but I reserve two half-hour time slots a week. So, I have a half-hour drive here from the gym and I have a half-hour drive home or give or take a half-hour. And I just... I carve out two of those a week to talk to either fans of the show or uh, owners of companies, managers of companies, and sometimes just 
like we'll do a zoom call with some of their techs or whatever and just chop it up with the with the audience so that was one of those so it was great talking to you guys if if there was an actual name i would know who it is but it's jcbo hall so i don't know cool great talking to you guys (laughs) thanks for the review if you want to uh leave a review that embarrasses me like such uh from my poor memory uh want to hype the show up want to thank the show want to help us grow we ask that you please either just make a facebook instagram whatever public post and tag us in it or uh jump on apple reviews and press rate the show and leave a little review or just click the five star button on uh, apple or spotify Well, thanks for that, Brian, and thank you for that review as well. We'd love to hear more of your reviews, so make sure you send that out to us. Right now, though, we're going to put none other than Jim McCormick in your passenger seat. Our guest today is Jim McCormick. He is the founder and president of the Research Institute for Risk Intelligence, which is the 2022 winner of the Corporate Livewire Innovation and Excellence Award for Risk Consultancies. Jim is the author of The Power of Risk, Business Lessons from the Edge, The First Time Manager, and Body Language Sales Secrets. Jim has an engineering degree from the University of Southern California and an MBA from the University of California. He is a former corporate chief operating officer who served in Washington, D.C. in a presidential administration where he received the Department of Energy's highest civilian recognition, the Exceptional Service Medal. Jim is also a world-class skydiver and member of the Hall of Fame of Parachuting. He has over 5,000 skydives, over 88 hours of free fall, jumps from 31,000 feet, and 17 skydiving world records, including two earned in April. He was a member of the skydiving expedition to the North Pole, and on his 40th birthday, Jim did 40 jumps in one day. On his 45th birthday, he did 45 all in one day, and it's going to be a great conversation today. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I I heard you on a podcast and immediately picked up, um, or I ordered a copy of The Power of Risk and love the book. Um, I also noticed that you, what, how would you say, uh, rewrote or wrote the seventh edition of the first time manager? Um, yeah, the first time manager, uh, I did the sixth and the seventh edition. The first four were done by a gentleman named Lauren Belker who passed away. Great piece, originally wrote it in the early eighties. And then a guy named Gary Topchick took on the fifth edition. He passed away, which made me reluctant to do the next edition. I thought maybe it was a life-shortening event, but so far I've made it. Through, so far I've made it through two editions. And the way it works is the publisher, uh, when they decide that they want you to update it, you've got to bring it current and give them twenty percent new material. So I've gone through that process twice. So theoretically, forty percent of what's in there is mine. Sixty percent of it is Gary's and, and Lauren's, and it's just a it's a great piece. It's sold over half a million copies. And I've always said it, it will always sell well as long as organizations continue to move individual contributors into management and assume they can somehow figure out how to manage, um, which happens all the time. And so it's a, and what we're looking at now is the possibility of doing a version of it that is not so much focused on somebody who's just new in management, but somebody who maybe has been there for a while but could use a little bit of advice. Well, I read I read the first time manager or listened to the audiobook, I should say, which the power of risk is not on audiobook that I could find. But I, I read not the yet. first we're working on we're working on that too. 
Oh, good. Uh, um, let us know when that comes through, because I'm then I'll listen to it uh, and enjoy it much more thoroughly. Because I'm not a <laughs> not a great reader, but uh, I would Got say it. that I've been managing for nine years now and read the first time manager for the first time this year after I heard you on that podcast. And I, you don't need to be a first time manager. You can be a manager of nine years, a somewhat successful manager, I guess, depending on who you ask. And I took, I took so many things away from it. I had to start it over and go through it again. So I actually read it twice in May. Well, that's a great affirmation because I've had a couple of people just spontaneously contact me and say, Hey, you know what? I make all of my management, you know, these are people that do management coaching. I make all of my clients read this thing and they, they, they're put off because you know, I'm not new to management. It doesn't matter. Read it anyway. So that's why we're thinking we might need to do a, a separate version. Yeah. I don't know why. Like there's, you should never, for me, you should never stop reading. You should never stop learning. If you're, if you're, you know, a stay at home dad, you should be reading books and listening to podcasts on being a better dad, like whatever you do, you should be trying to get better at it and, and listening and reading, listening to and reading to people who are better at it than you or may have some take on it that you're not familiar with yet. But there were so many concepts in that book that were new to me. I, I just, it was a gold mine for me and, and I'm good at what I'm good at, but there are things in there that I'm not good at. So it was, it was a good, it's a good refresher if you're in a seasoned manager and it's, it's, should be mandatory reading if you're a new manager because there's just not a lot of quote unquote manager training out there. But, and you know, I'd one, love of the to, client, one of the best, go ahead, Jim. One of the, I just want to say one of the best compliments I ever got when a buddy of mine who's a skydiver and he's in, he lives in Georgia and he made it mandatory reading for two of his teenage daughters. I thought that was really cool. Oh, wow. Preparation for leading people, huh? Exactly right. So I'd love to uh, love on that book some more and talk about that book for the whole the whole episode. But this one is going to be about the power of risk and um, more so than anything for me, since our our audience is primarily in home service technicians who sell for a living or the managers or owners of companies that train their technicians to do that. That probably the power of taking the risk of rejection, the risk of of being told no, the risk of presenting something that's beyond the scope of something that a, that a homeowner can afford or, or, you know, just maybe in general, the, the idea that kept popping into my head as I was reading this book was, man, I, I got to start biting off more than I can chew more, if that makes sense, which is, is just the, the uh, saying that kept popping up in my head while I was reading it. Yeah, I agree with that. We tend to, well, we all tend to place limitations on ourselves that are, are not justified. Um, when it comes to the area of risk, there's a whole lot of reinforcement. That's, there's messages that are sent to us continuously that it's not a good idea to take risks. Um, and I'm going to talk about that for a moment. But first, I just want to say that you know, people that do in-home sales, people that are managers, certainly people that are business owners, for the most part, they're going to rank higher on the, on the risk scale as, as it is as far as their personal risk profile. Um, that, but that doesn't mean that, first off, they might have a misperception of what their true risk quotient is. One of the things we take our clients through is the process of discerning their risk quotient. And 50% and of the time, is, they have underestimated their RQ, uh, or their risk inclination versus their RQ, which is more empirically derived. The reason that's important is sometimes we don't give credit to some of the talents we have when we talk about our risk capabilities. 
And that is often because we narrowly define our risk inclination. For uh, our research shows that males tend to, when asked, are you a risk taker or what's your risk inclination, they will focus on only two of the nine components of their risk profile. And those are their, their financial risk inclination and their physical risk inclination. Yet there's seven other components that they've, they've ignored or they're not aware of, such as intellectual risks and creative risks and emotional risks and spiritual risks, which really define us. So item number one, we need to give, a, give ourselves credit for the risk talents we have because there's some softer risks, if you will, um, like the ones I mentioned, that may be a, uh, an important component of who you are. The second thing I want to point I want to make is, and which I alluded to, is we are told from a very early age not to take risks, and that's for a very good reason. Which means what it comes down to is we are socialized to see risks as negative. How does that occur? Well, we all start when we're infants and children, very risk inclined, with no ability by which to manage it. So it's what we call the risk judgment imbalance, which you, you I know you read in the book. So what, is it, what does that mean? That means the authority figures in our lives do us a big favor. They help us to suppress our natural risk inclination, which is probably good because if we didn't, if that didn't happen, I'm not sure we'd make it to adulthood alive. So that means children, or excuse me, that means parents, grandparents, coaches, teachers, whoever has authority in our lives continually helps us to manage our risk inclination, which means suppress it. Okay, well, great. That's that's good news. We make it to adult status and we're still alive and that natural risk inclination is now in check. The challenge is, at what point do we give ourselves permission to re-engage? At what point do we say, you know what? Thank you for the help. I made it to this point. And generally, that point of brain maturity that allows us to manage our risk inclination occurs in our mid-20s which is interesting to contemplate because you think about all the responsibilities we have, 16, 18, 21, but the bottom line is it really doesn't occur until our 20s. Now we're, we're moving forward, we're adults, we start to have life experiences that help us to be able to evaluate what risks we should take. So one of the questions I would pose to your listeners is, have you given yourself permission to reclaim that risk inclination that had to be suppressed early on? So Jim, to put that in kind of like, uh, some layman's terms. I mean, <clears throat> when we're a kid, you know, you say we're extremely uh, not risk averse. So uh, right across the a road of, of traffic, uh, you know, we'll touch hot pots on the on the stove, like we'll jump through fire, we'll we'll swing from the branches of a tree and, and you know, jump off a 10 foot bridge and all this stuff, because we don't have the the wherewithal the experience, and more importantly, the 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 pain knowledge probably in most cases to understand what could happen or what will happen if I engage in these events. And you're, you're asking the question, okay, I mean like that's good. That that's a requirement for us to survive, uh, you know, beyond uh, toddler years, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> but then at what point do we actually get back to training ourselves out of that? Not in a way that we want to become unsafe, but in the book you talk about, it's not about, the risk, it's about managing, managing the effects of the risk, right? That's correct. But it starts with, if, if, if we agree, and, and you suggested when you were reading the book, you kept getting the message, maybe I need to challenge myself, maybe I need to stretch, maybe I need to take some more risks. You start, you start, you have to ask that question, 
do I have some natural abilities that I've set aside that it's time for me to reclaim? The second reason that we tend to see risk as negative, first off, is that we've been socialized to see it as bad. The second reason is nobody who is mentally healthy desires to be vulnerable. And taking risks make us, makes us vulnerable. So that's perfectly, that's perfectly sound reason. Um, so you're thinking, well, one is I've been told I shouldn't take risks. Secondly, it, it has the potential to, to have a negative impact on me, hence vulnerability. Put those two together, and we have, as humans, a conflicted relationship with risk. When we say, I say conflicted, what I mean is we know we need to take risks. Intellectually, we know we need to take them, and emotionally, we'd rather not. Again, because they create vulnerability. And therein lies the quandary. And what, what I find and what we've learned from all of our interactions with clients over the years is that the people who ascend in a business organization tend to be able to manage what we call the risk equation. The risk equation is they have the ability to do two things. Very simple. One is to identify the risks that they or their organization should take. And the step two, the second component of the risk equation, is to be able to implement those risks successfully. When they can do that, it clears the way for them to ascend to a much higher level of performance, either professionally or organizationally. So they have to be able to identify the risks that need to be taken, take some thoughtful assessments, and then implement them effectively, which takes a significant amount of effort, oftentimes, and evaluation as to how to improve the likelihood of a positive outcome. So let's make that practical. I mean, we kind of jumped right into the podcast here and, and didn't necessarily learn about your story. From what I could tell, The Power of Risk is perhaps your second book. Is that right? Uh, that is correct. Okay. So somewhere along the line, you decided that you wanted to take the risk of writing and publishing a work and putting it out there for everybody. And, so, you know, there's there's great risk in that in terms of being all the emotional effects that can come, the highs and specifically the lows. Um, getting denied by publishers, uh, you know, becoming irrelevant or, or becoming relevant in a, in a bad way that people are like, well, this book doesn't mean anything and, and all the things that could go wrong. But of course, you decided that all those possibilities were worth overcoming to publish the work, you know, to get it out there. And then in the second time, you did it again. And every time that you republished or re-updated a work, you were taking that risk over and over again. And then practically, you made the decision that it was not only worth it, but you found a way to execute on that. So what is your story? Why did you even decide to jump into authorship and, and take that risk? And what does that mean from a practical level for our audience? Well, I'll take it a step further. The writing books is a means to an end. What this all started with is an absolute personal fascination with why it is that we take risks or why we avoid them. Uh, to what extent it's indicative of what we can accomplish, whether it's innately positive to be risk inclined or perhaps innately negative to be risk inclined, and how our level of risk inclination will become definitive as to who we are. That started because 34 years ago, I did a skydive. I did it with the intent of doing one. I did it purely as a personal development device. And the premise is, like all your listeners can identify, with whenever we do something that is challenging to us and we proceed despite the resistance that naturally occurs in our minds and our bodies, it has the opportunity to be a growth experience. 
And that was my sole motivation. I had no idea that it would be something I would have a passion for, that I would have the privilege of doing over 5,300 skydives, continuing to be an active skydiver. I've now earned 17 world records in this, in this sport. So it, it has become something that's really important to me. But early on, I started, I, I mean, literally when I had a handful of jumps, I was looking at people and saying, why do they do this? Why on earth would you I mean, do something that every cell in your body says is a bad idea? There's nothing that naturally affirms the idea of jumping out of a plane when it's not on the ground. So why the heck would you do it? And then, and so I looked into the research that had been done on the skydiving community, and some, some had been done in the academic environment, talking about the demographic components and psychographic components. And then that transitioned to looking at where, to what extent risk is definitive within an organization. And if, if it's appropriate to have what risk posture serves an organization best. So my fascination with risk has started many, many years ago initially as a personal device, and then it's transitioned into all of the research and writing that I've done in the interim period. So that's where the, that's where this whole thing comes from. So when I say why, you know, when I take the risk of writing a book, well, it's because I felt that I had something that I hoped, I didn't know for sure, but I hoped would be of value to other people that I had done a lot of, put a lot of thought into and a lot of research into. And I thought if I can put this into, you know, 150 pages, there's a, there's a possibility that people might find it useful. But you've got to know when you're writing a book that it might be of use to nobody. <laughs> you might sell 40 copies and then you can put it on your shelf and say, I'm an author. Or you hope that there will be something more to it than that. But there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can't, other than if you're wealthy and you decide you're going to buy the first 5,000 copies yourself, there's nothing you can do. Well, there's authors that do that, by the way. Um, and then they can say they've got a bestseller. Um, uh, unless you use it, you have to just put it out there and see how the, how the world responds. But you have to feel comfortable that you actually have something to share. Now, the reality is everybody who writes a book thinks they have something to share. Uh, oftentimes they're not right. I'm so, not criticizing for that. I think writing a book is a great therapeutic process. But, um, I mean, I've, been, I've heard from publishers and literary agents that oftentimes people you know, want to write a memoir because they think their world of their life has been fascinating. And perhaps it's been more fascinating to their mother than it has. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we all need good moms, right? So what does this yeah. mean, Jim? I mean, do we have to be evil Knievel out there and we have to be like jumping over motorcycles and, you know, all kinds of dangerous stunts and stuff like that? What does this, this risk mean for us in a practical sense? Okay. There's an important distinction. And when you mention evil Knievel, it comes to mind and that's kind of the, that's kind of the archetype of what I call a daredevil. There's a daredevil and there's risk takers. Uh, daredevils in my estimation do things that, I would not care to do. Uh, oftentimes, they don't make sense um, to a reasonable person. Um, I don't criticize them for doing it, but it's not something I would care to participate in. It's not something I would advise people to do. Then there's what we call intelligent risk-taking. And intelligent risk-taking is about going through a very methodical process of saying, here's the outcome I'm choosing to pursue. How do I, what are the interim steps that can get me there, acknowledging that there's risk involved in that process? And the core... The core message of the, uh, of the intelligence of, of the power of risk is that to move from seeing risk as something to suppress instead of seeing it as something to utilize. And that sounds really simple, but it's, it's quite complex. So because we, we've been trained to see risk as something to avoid, 
we, it's easy to just lapse into that mindset, and that just ends up in, with a very monochromatic world, uh, a life that is devoid of a lot of the richness that we could otherwise engage in. Um, but, or we can say, you know, I want to do this, that, or the other thing. I want to write a book. I want to be in an acting troupe. I, I want to be, I want to be coach a soccer team. You know, I want to, I want to travel to Antarctica, whatever it is that, you know, somebody wants to do. Okay, what are the interim steps that can allow me to get there? But the important thing about the power of risk is to move from seeing risk as only working on minimizing the downside, but also working on increasing the chances of the upside. Conventional risk management is focused on risk suppression. The risk management we're talking about in power of risk is about taking definitely working on suppressing the negative, but also working on optimizing and increasing the chances of experiencing the positive. Okay. So let's say that I'm a, I'm a technician in the field right now. I'm an HVAC technician and I'm sitting in my truck and I'm at an intersection right before I pull up to a house. And I know when I get to that house, I'm going to be looking at a stranger and I'm there because their air conditioner isn't working right. And I know that I'm going to have to have a conversation with them about not only why their air conditioner isn't working right, but there's probably some other things that should be addressed in the home, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to decide in my head the risk of, of having what is going to be a difficult conversation with you know high dollars that this person did, not only didn't want to spend, but wasn't even expecting to spend when they woke up that morning. And I have to present all this bad news to them and the risk is I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be laughed at. Maybe they're going to be angry at my prices. Uh, you know, they might have additional family pressures coming their way from their schedule or other things that they were expecting to be doing today. But now they have to be at home waiting for me to ask them to spend money. And so there's a lot of risk that in my head I'm trying to suppress. Like, how can I, how can I present this in a kinder way? How can I dialogue about this in a way that's not going to get my head bit off. What does that look like in terms of maximizing the opportunity? Yeah. And what we're talking about is, at its core there is risk of rejection. Nobody likes to be rejected. And if a homeowner gets upset or they say, you know, this, this is unreasonable, uh, this is dramatically more than I expected. I think you guys are overcharging, blah, 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 blah. You know, that is a, the whole process of overcoming rejection is very complex element um, and a lot of sales trainers are really good at it. My comment is about the, the fear of rejection is it's very much present. Um, if you're good with it, if you're good, if you've got the people skills to be able to work with people and say, hey, here's where you're at and let me tell you how I can get to where you want to be. Meaning, uh, come August, you want to make sure that you've got a comfortable home to come home to. Um, come, Dece come December, you want to make sure you have a comfortable home to come home to. I realize this is probably more than you had in mind, but here's the steps we can take to get you there so that you really have a you have a place that you feel confident it's going to be comfortable it's going to be reliable and it's not something that you need to worry about you can focus on other things in your life you know that's easy to say but really that's what you're it's always it's, it's basic solution selling you're not selling a piece of equipment you're selling a solution and the solution is you're providing people with a comfortable house now we're getting into sales training and that's kind of a that's kind of a whole other realm i'd like to take it back a step and when I know that I'd be talking to you guys and I'm talking about, you know, people in home sales and managers and technicians and all that, my question that I pose to you guys is how many of the people who listen to this podcast do you think fantasize about being their own boss? 
about being their own boss? Yeah. Running yeah. The, having their own company as opposed to working for somebody else. You know, I've, I've, I, I know a lot of technicians and was a technician myself. I'd say it's, it's probably a lot more fantasize about not having a boss than being their own boss. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Pro- probably a lot less than you'd think just because of how stressful it is to own a home services company. But, but plenty. I'm sure plenty. I mean, because, Mike, you know, if you, want to, if you want to talk about an interesting illustration of the power of risk and the intelligent risk-taking process, it would be for those who say, you know, uh, I think I could do this as well or better than the people I'm working for, which I think is probably a common sense. Um, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get to the point where I open my own business. I, I've got salespeople. I've got administrative people. I've got the investments involved in the, in the equipment. Um, and that's exactly, the, you know from reading the book, those are the kinds of steps that, that it guides people through, meaning they say, well, you know, how can I, I need a salary. You know, I, I got to be able to pay my bills. And so there's a component of financial planning. There's a component of staffing. You know, can you hire a, a family member to be a half-time administrative support for you when you get started? How are you going to do your sales? Do you, have, do you have some good customers that would be candidates to come with you so that you can have a baseline of revenue? Those are all of the kinds of steps, what we call them possums, um, as you know from the book, which is simply an acronym for possibility, of success enhancement measures, possibility of success enhancement measures. And that's all the stuff, the great ideas you can come up with and say, well, if we do this, that, and the other thing, um, the chances of being successful are significantly better, and the chances of not being successful are significantly reduced. And that's what we mean by intelligent risk-taking, going through this in a very methodical and intentional manner in in order to get to the outcome that you're looking for. So when I... To get it, uh, I'm not going to focus so much on the, the fear of rejection. That's a very significant component, but I will tell you that's more of a sales training concept to deal with. But when pe- people see something that they want to accomplish in their lives, whether it's professional or personal, it is oftentimes we will we will allow the hurdles to be bigger than they need to be, or we will not give ourselves credit for good ideas that will allow us to clear those hurdles. Wow. That's pretty powerful, that one not giving ourselves the credit for the good ideas. How yeah, do- and that's and it's, and it's important that that good idea process, that process process, that's something where you want to engage as many people as you can because you're going to have some good ideas, but it's great to go to other people in your lives, perhaps people that have done this before successfully or unsuccessfully, and say, hey, this is what I want to do. What ideas come to mind that can help me be successful? And you can really clear the path to be able to be successful when you go through that process and then implement it. So, Jim, what's a personal example in your life where you used uh, the acronym, I believe it's P-O-S-E-M, uh, poss- right. the possible outcomes. What's a, what's a personal example in your life where you used that strategy to overcome the potential detriments? Um, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to jump into a San Francisco Giants game at Candlestick Park before they moved to their new stadium. And... As you may know, Castle Park was on the right on the water, San Francisco Bay, and, which is notoriously windy. Castle Park was a fully um, enclosed stadium, no roof, but it was 360 degrees seating. And a stadium of that sort is particularly taxing to get into because it generates its own wind current, and it can be very, very difficult and potentially quite dangerous to get into. 
and successfully. And so I had, to, I was pretty uncomfortable with this opportunity, although I had something I very much wanted to do. So I sat down and started to make a list of all the things I was concerned about and then all the ways I could solve those problems, which was the possible generation process. And one of the things I came up with was I wanted to do a significant number of practice jumps where I was replicating all of the obstacles that I'd need to deal with. I also determined that I was going to be at the stadium exactly 24 hours in advance of my jump time to be able to observe the, all of the wind activity that was taking place at that time on the premise that it would probably be fairly representative of what I would be experiencing the next day. Um, and those are examples of some of the processes I implemented. Uh, I also talked to people who had jumped into the stadium previously to get insights from them um, and learn things like whenever you're jumping into a stadium, particularly an enclosed stadium like that, or a fully circular stadium, uh, there are wind currents coming out of there, basically what we call a wave. There's a wave coming out of the stadium that is trying to repulse you and not allow you to make your way into the stadium. So it's really important that you approach a stadium, a fully enclosed stadium like that, um, with the wind at your back, because otherwise it's possible that that wave will keep you from actually making it into the perimeter of the stadium. And then you need to know what to do once you get inside, because not only does it generate its own currents, that oftentimes are somewhat uh, circular, um, because they'll follow the, the design of the stadium, but then there's also supplemental wind effects that come through the tunnel for people entering into the stadium. So those are all things I needed to be aware of. Um, I also, one of the possums I implemented was to have ground crew members both on the, uh, on the radio, so I was in touch with them, on the roof of the, on the roof of the stadium, or the top of the stadium, so the winds would be doing one thing up there, and then having also a ground crew member on the field who was deploying smoke which is the finest, the best wind indicator you can get for that kind of jump because not only does it give you wind direction, it gives you wind velocity by virtue of looking at the density of the smoke. So those are all various possums that I came up with to ultimately be a successful jump. And obviously you made it because you're here now to uh, talk about it today. Well, it was dicey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I was coming in and trying to make my way in the stadium, I just could not get any forward. I hit the wave, and I was not getting any forward penetration. And I had gotten, you know, you read these stories about the pilots that says, you know, they could tell their fighter jet was going down. They stood away from the school, and you're thinking, that's impressive. Well, I was actually said, it's clear to me I'm not going to make it to the field. I'm going to land in the upper stand. So I was literally looking down and trying to figure out where I could hit the seats where I wasn't going to hit a person. And I thought, this is not how I wanted this to work out, but at least I don't want to hurt somebody else in the process. Certainly, I'm going to get hurt. And then all of a sudden, I made my way through the wave and made my way out into, into the stand or into, over the field. And then I was set up to land in shallow center, and all of a sudden, the winds hit me again, and I was going backwards and heading for the outfield stands, right field. And I thought, oh, this is not good, because if I get to the stand going backwards and you know, have an impact, I mean, I, I'm thinking paralysis, not, not a good thing at all. Those winds relented. This is, just shows how variable the winds were. And finally, I was able to get some forward speed. But the only way you can land a parachute successfully is that your forward speed into lift. And that means you have to have enough forward speed to do that, or else you're going to auger in and you know, they're going to have to delay the game when they take me out of center field. Um, and I was able to get just enough forward speed to be able to land and stand it up wave at the crowd, and my first words was, We're, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and then the, mascot, the mascot came over to me, got down to his knees, and 
and and uh, paid homage to me by waving his arms. Like uh, you know, it was it was a neat tribute. It was a fun thing to do, and it was definitely not something I was going to do. Wow! How many thirty-two ounce plastic cups full of beer were you able to snag going past the crowd? <laughs> I know what you were up to, Jim. <laughs> and the good news is, I didn't have to pay for any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, in the book, you say through maturity and life experiences, you've acquired judgment you did not have as a child and youth, but you probably haven't consciously readjusted your attitude toward risk. Now, as a Correct. kid, you know, one of we might think, yeah, jumping out of airplane, that sounds fantastic. Let's let's go do it. And let's try to jump in the middle of a football game. Fantastic. That's amazing. Mm. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? And then somewhere right. around, uh, you know, like 27, you're probably like, that's freaking insane. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not jumping out of an airplane. That's crazy. And I don't know how old you were well, when you actually conducted that jump. But in the book, you, you have an well, interesting illustration where you show judgment and ability to risk successfully as very tiny when you're a child in your childhood, in your adolescence. And then they grow exponentially with the benefit of life experiences and judgment. So speak about that. And that's exactly what we call the risk judgment and balance. And it's, so, uh, what I touched on earlier, which is you start out high risk inclination devoid of judgment. That risk inclination gets suppressed. We then go into the adult status. The good news is now we have judgment, as you referenced. We have life experiences. We have brain maturity. How, and then the question is, can we reclaim some of that natural risk inclination so that we can engage it successfully? And I will tell you, unless a person has consciously said to themselves, thank you to all of my, the authority figures that were there in my early in my life. Um, I really appreciate the help. I'm going to give you back the script that you helped me write at that time. Thank you for it. And I'm going to now write my own. Unless you've really done that, and, and that's not a simple process. I mean, consciously saying, you know, I'm not suggesting you go to those people in person, but I'm saying, think through. Uh, all the messages that you heard from them, who, which are perhaps now no longer appropriate, and say, I'm going to now give myself credit for writing my own. I'm going to give myself the privilege of writing my own script. That's what that's all about. So the problem, you know, the challenge is, you know, we, we're about to do something interesting. Um, and and then do we hear a parent, a grandparent, a coach, uh, somebody along the line that says, don't do that, don't do that, and we still listen to them even though it's no longer and the purpose of this is what? I mean, you know, we're, we're not all trying to be evil Knievel. We're not all trying to be that. But what is the purpose of even saying, I need to readjust my thinking. I need to recalibrate my mind to be more uh, accepting of risk. What are we trying to find? The answer is what we're, we are seeking to do is maximize the opportunities that are presented to us in life and to have a more, a richer experience. When I talk about that, I mean, we talk about, there's three kinds of risks. There's the mandatory risks, there's the optional risks, and there's the avoided risks. The mandatory risks are the risks we perceive that we need to take in order to function. Um, and those are things like driving a car, those are things like getting out of bed. Uh, it might be something like getting married, having children, there are significant risks involved in those, but they are seen as, by many people, as something that they need and hence those things is mandatory. Now we go into the optional risks or the chosen risks. And that's what, to answer your question, those are the ones we're talking about because that's where we make the decisions 
as to whether we want to add some richness to our lives so that we have a, a more positive experience, so that we have a more satisfying life, and on the business side, that we have the opportunity to, to, to expand our careers and as business owners to expand our operations, it might be expanded geographically, it might be going through acquisitions, it might, but all of this is about moving past the perceived limitations that we can, we, we wake up with. So in the book and for our listening audience, unfortunately they can't see this, but you have a nice graph and a picture of a line divided into approximately thirds, uh, three different categories. And as you mentioned, you have the mandatory chosen, the mandatory or chosen risk. And you have a great quote in the book that says, the fact that you have not consciously analyzed the options before taking action does not make it less of a risk. Like we all wake up in the morning, we all get in our car and drive down the road and never really think about the fact that actually you're most likely to die in any mode of transportation while in a car. Um, so, you know, that's a chosen risk, but the fact that we haven't really analyzed it doesn't even make it less of a risk, even if we have chosen it and haven't even really thought about it or analyzed it. The middle category, as you mentioned, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. It goes beyond that because the important thing to know is any risk that we are taking, using driving as an example, we perceive as being less threatening than one we are taking, even though that might not be statistically valid. best example I can give you is the following. Fatalities per participant are higher for bicycling than skydiving. Wow. But it's understandable that because bicycling is seen as a fairly normal and benign activity, that we wouldn't think of it as such. Where skydiving is seen as a more outlandish activity that's not necessary. And another, another way of illustrating that is I can prove to you statistically the most dangerous part of a day of skydiving, as you're suggesting, is driving to and from the airport. Right. It's not right. the part of the <laughs> but, but because most people have chosen not to do a skydiving, I'm not proposing, I'm not promoting skydiving. If they want to do it, they should do it. If they don't want to do it, it's not worth the discussion. But the point is, because they've chosen not to do it, yet they probably avail themselves of some form of transportation on a recurring basis, they would see skydiving as more dangerous because it is out of their realm of knowledge. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. And, and this is where we come to the next point that I wanted to discuss, which is the last two categories. So in the middle of that line, you have optional risks. And then on the, on the far side of the line, you have avoided risks, right? And the, the line that separates those two categories you have listed as your comfort threshold. And while, you know, in our image, you may have that divided perfectly in thirds, the comfort threshold is really a relative line that moves back and forth. Uh, sometimes it leans more towards optional risks and sometimes it leans more towards avoided lists. And in your book, what you have is your opportunity territory is the, the, the section immediately to the right of the line that divides optional risks from avoided risks. Now this is very theoretical and, and our audience is a listening audience, so they don't have the benefit of the book, but I want you to talk about that opportunity territory in a practical sense of where I am in an optional risk. These are risks that I have, I've decided are worth the effort and the potential downfall or, or consequence that could occur. And immediately to the right of that, it's starting to edge into the avoided risk category. The ones that I've decided I don't want to engage in is the opportunity territory. Speak to us about that and why that's so important. Sure. That, that threshold between uh, our optional risks and our avoided risks, stuff that as of this moment, 
doesn't make sense. It may have been something we did in the past, maybe something we've never done, maybe something we've thought about, or maybe something that absolutely will never make sense and never will fit into our lives. That threshold between the two defines your, your current comfort zone. Your comfort zone is dynamic. Um, you're at that threshold between, between optional risks and avoided risks is, is influenced by externalities. And I'm going to speak to the opportunity zone in a moment, but I want to make the point. Our risk inclination and our, and our comfort zone will expand and contract during the course of our lives. It is significantly influenced by external events. It is significantly influenced by commitments. To the extent we make commitments to others, it is understandable that our risk profile might legitimately need to change. As another, so obviously we go out, you know, say I want to go rock climbing, I want to go river rafting, I want to, I want to go skydiving. And then all of a sudden you say, well, wait a second, I've got three kids and I've, I have a spouse. Maybe that's not the responsible thing for me to do right now, even though it's a very slight chance of a problem. But just right now, it doesn't make sense. I have skydiving friends that as soon as their kids were out the door, they said, I've always wanted to skydive and now I'm going to do it. But they waited until that parenting commitment had been, had been addressed. The point is that threshold between optional risks and avoided risks changed. And in their case, in that example, it expanded. It moved to the right on that continuum. And now what had been avoided risks now were included into their chosen Think of it in these terms, and since we're, this is only audio, I'll give an illustration. You're in your backyard, you're looking over your fence, and your next door neighbor has something really cool or interesting. They've got a, a new lawnmower, they've got a great new awesome grill, they've got something going on that you go, you look over the top and go, or they just put in a new hot tub or something really cool. And you look over the top and go, wow, that's kind of exciting. Whatever that is that you can see over that, over your fence, over the back hedge, um, that is the stuff that's out there in that opportunity territory, what I like to call the opportunity zone, because when you, you look at the acronym for opportunity zone, it's odd, like the Wizard of Oz, um, just behind the curtain. Um, so that, there you go, okay, wow, that's kind of cool. I wonder if I could do that, and if so, how would I go about doing it? And that's about exploiting that stuff that's just over that threshold of the dividing line between optional risks and avoided risks, and taking some of those avoided risks, if you choose to, and putting them into your bringing them into your comfort zone. Okay, so our listening audience has a, a lot of people in the home services industry, and let's just say that uh, somebody is considering um, looking for a new job. I think you actually even use that illustration somewhere in your book where you're considering looking for a new job. There's a lot of uh, you know, apprehension about what that could hold, you know, especially if you're a tenured employee, you're, you're five, six, seven years at your current location. And you're thinking, I don't know, I, there just, there's gotta be a better opportunity out there. And all of a sudden you catch a glimpse on the other side of the fence and you're like, wow, check out that new grill, check out that new job. That looks really cool. How does one go about exploring the opportunity and, and even, sort of mathematically making a decision as to whether it's worth pursuing the discomfort that is on the other side of the fence. And this is where we talk about the risk assessment success enhancement process. And this is, which is all about, and core is about generating the possum, the possibility of success enhancement measures. And what I would tell you is, if you go about that uh, willy-nilly without doing, putting a lot of thought into it, chances of getting the outcome you're looking for are dramatically reduced. 
what I'm going to tell you is for somebody that's, you know, six or seven years in the position, they're thinking maybe there's someplace else I want to live or someplace else I want to work for or I want to expand my professional opportunities and this organization's not giving me that, that chance. Um, then that's when they need to go through a very methodical process of generating positive, such as talking to networking, talking to people that perhaps work for that company, saying, what's it really like? I see the public persona, but what's it really like to work for that company? Where's this? Where's that organization going? Uh, is it is it in a growth mode that would reward me, or is there are all of the upper positions, if that's what they aspire to, are they already static? Are there family members that are taking those positions? Or am I going to be capped out as far as how well I can progress within that organization? What is the training like? Are they supportive in as far as professional development? Or are they expecting to show up fully trained and figure out how to do it yourself? Um, what's their compensation program? Uh, do they believe incentive compensation, baseline, uh, base compensation? What's the combination of the two? How does that correlate to your skill set and being, a, being able to maximize the revenue and the income that you can generate? These are, and so it's all of those questions that they want you. First off, you need to write down what are the questions you have and then how can you get good answers to them? A lot of this is going to be done by going through research, going through, uh, open door and stuff and looking at what's available online as far as information on an organization so that you can then target them and decide these are the three companies I really like to work for because they correlate to my personal and professional goals. And then how do I go about access? Okay. So, you know, we do all the research, we talk to all the people, we, you know, maybe we even go get an interview. Uh, you know, we, we answer all the questions to the best of our ability uh, to find this stuff out. And, and, you know, we we're on the precipice, so to speak of making a decision and that's when fear kicks in and we start, we start manufacturing in some cases, uh, you know, perceived fears or inaccuracies. And, and in other cases, we just have the legitimacy of, even though I know I've packed my parachute, even though I know that I've calculated wind speed, even though I know that you know, my pilot has me in the correct position and it's a wide open field and the landing crew is ready for me and all these things, even though all these things are in, are in place and I've answered all my questions, I still have to overcome the fear of literally jumping out of this plane, a perfectly flying in, in good working order airplane and placing myself in a position of potential harm. Even though I ha even though I've answered all the questions about a potential job and what that could look like and who I'd be working for and how I'd get paid and all these things, I still have to make the jump from my current employer or whatever the situation is into, into the, the, you know, the space right after you leave the airplane, which is perhaps the most scariest level of commitment. So how do we overcome that fear? And what does that look like on a practical level um, for making that happen without going out of our mind or backing out altogether? Well, a couple of comments. First off, we're probably not going to make the move until there's a certain degree of discomfort with the status quo. Something... Something is going on in, in your current setting that you're either not that you're not satisfied with, or you're not comfortable with, and so ultimately, what's going to be that push that takes you metaphorically out the door? It's going to be the discomfort or dissatisfaction with where you're at. The second point I would make is the following: part of the value, part of the power of doing something like a skydive, as an example, is that. You can do all the right things, and there's still a very, very, very slight chance that it won't work out. 
I knew when I did my first skydive, there was a possibility that that would be the last thing I ever did. Um, and you can't get rid of that. Uh, even though you could do all the right things, there's a possibility that you're going to go out the door and, and it's going to be tragic and you're going to die. And I would tell you that a big part of the power of that experience is accepting the fact that there is that very slight possibility and you're going to proceed despite that. And I know that sounds cavalier. That's the reality of life. And that's when we go back to the risk spectrum we spoke of. We talked about what we perceive as the mandatory risk. You're taking risks every day, every moment. Everything in life is a risk. But if you're doing it on a regular basis, you don't see it as such. Um, what is the definition of a risk? A risk is any action with an uncertain outcome. That defines everything we do in life. When we walk out the door, we are taking a risk that has an uncertain outcome. We get in a car, we're doing the same thing. When we take a, when we take a new job, we're doing the same thing. But we can do all of the smart moves, generating the possums and then implementing them so that there is a much higher likelihood that we're going to get the desired result. Meaning, as an example, going back to the situation we're talking, speaking about, you've done an interview, you've got a job offer, um, and you're thinking, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do this. Ultimately, it's going to, it's going to come down to, you've got to take a, you're going to take a risk, but the goal is to minimize that risk by doing all the research and having all the information, having talked to other people who have worked for the company, who continue to work for the company, so you really are making a well-informed decision. Jim, and maybe this can help us and and help everyone listening to uh, decide to take that risk. As I look back at all the the big steps that I took, especially the more blind ones into you know thin air, like stepping out of a plane, which I've never done that one yet, but I I do plan on it. and then look, looking back now going, am I glad I made that decision? It's almost always yes. Like he, whether it worked out perfectly or it was a total disaster and I go, would I have traded the experience for the lesson? Probably not. Like I'm glad I have that wisdom. You've probably seen dozens or maybe hundreds. I don't know of people in a plane with you who did not want to get out of that plane when they got up into the air. Maybe it was their first dive or what have you, what's the typical reaction to someone once their feet finally hit the ground after their first dive? Well, first off, let me make a point. I have seen actually extremely few people in the plane that realize they didn't want to be there. Um, and I, what, and they have the same exact circumstances, which is they were there basically out of peer pressure. You know, they were out the night before, and everybody said, "Hey, we're gonna go skydiving tomorrow. Let's do it." And everybody, goes, yeah, that's great. I'll be there. <laughs> that, that's the best way to do yeah. it, in my opinion. You don't have a month leading yeah. up to it to get all nervous. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they get in the plane. They go, "What was I thinking? I have no interest in doing this." The commitment that people make when they're going to decide they're going to do a skydive is not when they show up; it's when they call, and make the reservation, and give them a credit card. It's like, okay, done. Now it's just a matter of implementing. That's when they've made the decision. It is extremely uncommon to see people now that they've made that commitment to say, gosh, I, didn't, I really didn't want to do this. So that's the good news. Now, to answer your question is, so I, I mean, I've seen only a handful of people ever stay in the plane and come back down, uh, and it's, which is too bad because I, I wish they hadn't gone through that experience because that's, you know, that's going to be a little bit depleting. What is their answer when they land? Uh, commonly, there's a sense of, well, there's a profound sense of exhilaration, obviously. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty darn pumped, 
but there is a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment. And I can speak to my own. I remember specifically the day I was driving back from my first skydive, and actually I did my second skydive the same day because I was immediately taken to it. Um, my first words when I landed for my first jump was, that was cool, I want to do that again. And I was fortunately able to do it the, the same second jump the same day. But driving home, I remember specifically, I felt this great sense of empowerment. I felt like I dodged a bullet, and I felt like, wow, if I can do that, I can probably do anything. So it's very empowering. Uh, so you're not only are you an author, you're also a speaker. Any chance you do like motivational speeches on your way up in the airplane? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I used to do be a cannon instructor. I had the privilege of bringing people into the sport, you know, taking them off out for their first jump, uh, which is a is a really cool experience. Uh, it's a real privilege to be able to do something like that. Um, I would usually talk to them before we got in the plane. Once we're in the plane, conversations are not, you know, <laughs> right. it's hard to have a, much of a conversation. But um, and at that point, generally what you want to do is distract them from thinking about, you know, all the things that can potentially go wrong. Yeah. Because, you know, that, that, at that point, you're going to start cracking jokes and, and being silly. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, it's door open. And studies have shown that the highest point of stress for somebody doing their first jump is not when they get in the plane. It's not when they exit the plane. It's actually when the door opens. Because up to that point, everything seems reasonably normal. All of a sudden, you're okay. two and a half miles above the ground, and there's an open door, and you're thinking, wait a second, something's wrong here. Yeah. Um, so, but in advance, I'll oftentimes would say, you know, help me out here. Well, what, what's your motivation for doing this? And oftentimes, they'd say, well, I have a fear of heights. I want to see if this might help. Or something I've always wanted to do. Or, you know, everybody has, has their own motivation for doing it. But if, if they need motivation to get in the harness and get in a plane, quite frankly, they're not a good candidate. No. Yeah. So another question about that, Jim, I mean, you, you do uh, speaking engagements and things like that, and I'm sure you get around a fair amount um, in, in all of the things that you're doing. When you're looking at people and you're having conversations and you're hearing frequently asked questions and things like that, when it comes to risk, what, what are the common elements that people are stuck on? Like, what can't they overcome? What is it about risk that is, you know, sort of universal in the human race? And and what have you, what has been your words of advice for people in those moments? And it comes back to what we discussed early on, which is, it, it comes back to the desire not, not to be vulnerable, which is a perfectly healthy concern that anybody would have. Um, and that's what keeps, keeps us from moving forward. Um, but, my advice to those people is now, once we identify what we're concerned about, as I touched on before, what are all the steps we can do to significantly reduce the chances of the negative outcome? Because when we can do that, our perception of vulnerability diminishes. And if we can manage, if we can go through a thoughtful, methodical process, then we legitimately reduce the perception of vulnerability and we have a dramatically higher likelihood of achieving the outcome we're looking for. And then the personal resistance will not disappear. The fear will never disappear entirely, but it will fade to a lower level. Yeah. And it's, it's about embracing that fear, like not, not denying that it's there, but actually engaging with it. Engaging with it to some extent. I mean, uh, uh, yes, uh, embracing the fear is a valid concept to a point. 
but we also accept that it's profoundly powerful. And unless we can move, if we can reduce the perception of vulnerability, it's going to be harder for us to feel comfortable taking that, that step, whatever step that is. Yeah, I think it was in your book that uh, you had talked about the NASA program. Um, and when the first, you know, the first uh, astronauts were getting ready to engage in their test pilot series and things like that, it was, there was a difference between the two astronauts uh, or two types of astronauts. Speak about that a little bit. Sure. What the NASA did research because they found that, you know, some of the astronauts were getting, you know, initiating the missions and they're having problems. They're literally having, they're vomiting from anxiety and stress and fear. And others were, were not having that same physiological response. And what they determined is that the primary determinant as to whether the people that had the, the problem with the physiological response is or the ones who didn't have that, is they were accepting the fact that they're going to be afraid. Where the people that were, were up chucking in, you know, into the airbags in, in, the, in the space capsule were the ones that were trying to convince themselves they weren't going to be afraid. Because, you, know, you know, I'm super macho, I'm not going to be fearful, when that's completely unjustified. And you're in this little tuna can on top of a rocket, and this thing explodes, and you're going to be in another zip code in no time at all. Um, it, it legitimately, you should be afraid. And if you can't accept the fact that that fear is going to be present, it will manifest physiologically. That's what that's what NASA discovered. Yeah, and, and that's that's so interesting to me. So again, it's not about like denying it. It's not about saying that there's no risk at all. It, it's you you have to acknowledge it in a healthy way, and and that's something that is kind of counterintuitive because, you know, people have different ways of approaching risk. One of them is certainly denying that it exists or, or just eliminating all the possibilities and, and all that. And yet in, in that NASA study, they found out that it wasn't, that wasn't actually the win. The win was definitely acknowledging the fact that there's real danger here, but still pursuing in or stepping into it willfully. Exactly. I mean, you get into that space capsule, they close the hatch, you know, you may never see your family again. You have to accept that that's the, that is indeed the case. And if you're, if you're in denial about that, your body will remind you that, you're, that, there is a, that you are afraid, even if you're trying to avoid it. Yeah. Well, Jim, as we're bringing things in for landing here, if people are interested in finding out more about The Power of Risk or any of your other books, where's a great place to find you or more of that information? Probably the best thing to do is go to the, the uh, website for the Institute, which is risk hypheninstitute.com. It's a uh, re research institute for, for risk intelligence. So it's it's risk plural hyphen institute.com, and that pretty much will give them a good start and the means by which you get touch with it. But if, if they choose to, it will also present the books. So Jim, uh, we have an up and coming audience as well of young people who are stepping into the trades and, you know, there's a certain amount of apprehension that comes with choosing a career. Uh, some people are coming out of college. Some people have no college and they're just, you know, wandering around and we've all, at least at, on this particular podcast, all three of us have engaged in a certain level of trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives and, and what that looks like. And we have actually seen physical manifestations of people getting extremely anxious when they're going into the home for the first time and, you know, shaking and they're crying or, or you're getting physically ill and things like that. Um, what can you say to the young and upcoming generation in terms of making decisions 
and specifically the rewards that come with choosing to risk? Well, as you know from the book, one of the things that I'm very keen on is going through a thoughtful process of identifying your personal skill set. Um, because if to, to be successful and happy in life, you need to find an occupation that aligns with your personal skill set. If you're continually trying to do something for which you're not well suited, it's going to be that tension is likely to be ever present, and it's going to be really hard for you to be successful. If you're if you are somebody who's particularly analytical and you tend to be introverted, you know you're probably not somebody that's going to be great in a sales environment. Um, if you have great people skills and you know you just really like meeting new people, obviously that's a setting where you might you might do well. None of those are good or bad. It's just really. In the beginning of chapter three, I talk about there's a few things that are sadder than people trying to pursue uh, uh, pursue a course for which they're not well suited. And the, the metaphor I use is: Could you enter the Tour de France bicycle race with a, a Schwinn 10 speed? Yes, you could, but it's highly unlikely you'll be successful. Uh, if your skill set aligns with the task, then you've got a you've got a twenty thousand dollar custom made bike, and you're going to be a hell of a lot more. It, and or another way to put it is this. You might really like basketball, um, but if you don't have the physical characteristics and the athletic talent, you're probably never going to be in the NBA. That doesn't mean you don't enjoy basketball. But when you pursue somebody that says, I really want to be in the NBA regardless, all it's going to be is a life of frustration because they don't have the personal skill set that qualifies you for it. So to the younger people that are working on it, developing their career path, the book goes takes them through a process of develop of discerning their personal skill set. Nothing I think could be more important as they determine their career path. And that's a great place to wrap things up here, Jim. And and uh, just a few final thoughts here. Explain the difference between I believe you have it listed as your passion and your calling. Yeah, uh, your that's, that's that's an interesting question to conclude with. Your passion may be something that you really that you feel strongly about, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to what your, your what your gifts call you for. Toward. So, if you there might be things, like, let me go back and just since we touched on it, let's use the basketball metaphor. Your passion may be for athletics, but your calling may be to do something completely different. You may just not be naturally athletically gifted. So that's the important. It's important to be aware. You know, you want to blend those to the extent possible, but your passions and your calling are different. Your calling is what am I, what am I uniquely qualified to do, and that's where I should. That that is my calling. Uh, to the extent that your passion, you know, an example I'll give you. I have a friend who is very keen on basketball. She is a relatively short female. Obviously, she was not a great candidate to play basketball. She has throughout the course of her career at a secondary occupation of announcing basketball games. Perfect. So she's, she has a great presence. She has a great voice. She announces basketball games. She loves the sport, but she's not out on the court. Therein shows a, a means of blending a passion and a call. That's a great explanation, Jim, and we appreciate yeah, that, that. That is a great uh, question to ask ourselves on a pretty regular basis probably is uh, what am I uniquely qualified for? Great question to ask the kids. Great question to ask ourselves. Jim, as we wrap up, I, I would say if I have one regret 
about this interview, buddy. It is the fact that I was pretty sure, you know, we were recording at one o'clock Eastern time where we're at in Pennsylvania here. And I was pretty sure, had Nate almost convinced that you were going to parachute onto the roof of the building at like 1245. (laughs) (laughs) And that didn't happen, my man, but maybe next time. I have surprised clients in the past by doing as much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that would have been a heck of a surprise. Well, Jim, that's a, that's a wrap for us today. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. And uh, not only that, but the book in terms of exploring the concept of risk, the power of risk, and the rewards that can be received if we choose to step into that. Thank you so much for investing in us and our audience. My pleasure, guys. All right. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Take care. That's a wrap for this podcast. We hope that you enjoyed your time with Jim McCormick. Great conversation about the power of risk and the intelligent choices that will make you more successful that go along with it. We hope that you enjoyed it. It's a great, uh, a great book, a lot of graphical references, so uh, maybe not the best for audio, uh, but super great quotes and concepts in there to help us understand what it takes to step into the, the, uh, the breach, you know, to step out of that plane into something that's a little bit scary. And I think whether you're young or old, uh, there's always the opportunity that comes with risk. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as we get older, it does seem that risk becomes something that we're more and more uh, apprehensive about. And I think it's something that, you know, Jim has encouraged us today to step back on and say, is that really the path that I am I really supposed to be that adverse to it? What is my passion? What is my calling? And what is my willingness to step into both of those? Great interview with Jim today. We hope that you enjoyed the show. And we want to leave you now with our weekly challenge, which, of course, is to choose the risk uh, and do that by waking up every single morning and wasting no day.